Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with LaRue Graham about public service on the Meriden City Council, about public service at the Boys and Girls Club of Meriden, and about coaching young people and the power of sports. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and I am so honored to have today LaRue Graham as our guest. Uh, Mr. Graham is a father of three. Uh, he is a political leader in the city of Meriden, Connecticut. He's the deputy majority leader of the Meriden City Council. Uh, he's been on the council for eight years. Um, and I'm really excited to say he's the CEO and executive director of the Boys and Girls Club of Meriden. Um, and so that's such uh, important service-driven work. Uh, but I'm 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 tickled to uh, have you on, uh, sir. And um, uh, so welcome to the Indispensables. Well, thank you, Bruce. I'm excited to be on as well. I appreciate it. Uh, it's just great to have you. And um, please uh, tell us, you know, how did you get to where you are? How did you get uh, to leading the Boys and Girls Club? Uh, how did you get into this position of political leadership? Uh, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about your story. Well, I mean, I, I guess it really started with all of the volunteer hours, um, you know, that I was putting in throughout the community. Um, believe it or not, at one time, um, I was the president of Jack Berry. Um, I was running uh, the Mayor Raiders football, uh, what, the head coach of the Mayor Raiders football team, also on the board, um, also running uh, the Connecticut Shock. And I, I think that just people knew that I was very active with kids and throughout the community. Um, the opportunity actually got afforded to me when uh, one of the uh, sitting counselors had the opportunity to run for a state position and won at a state level, Dante Bart Bartolomeo. So she, she was fortunate and she won, uh, which opened up a position. And so when they came to me with this opportunity, to be honest with you, I was a little hesitant because, you know, I'd, I'd never really uh, had any experience in the political arena before other than voting. And so you know, the first thing I, you know, first thing I did was I thought about my kids, you know, I thought about the time that it was going to take away from my kids. And, and then also on the other, on the flip side of that, I thought about the experiences I could share with my kids so that they could be more informed than I was at their age. Um, and so after careful consideration with my kids um, and, and talking it through the pros and the cons, uh, we decided that, you know what, let's give it an opportunity. It was a one year appointment and why not? Let me just uh, let me drill down on a couple of things. So, so all of a sudden you find yourself on the Meriden City Council in this one-year position because you're filling a role for somebody who's now uh, stepped up into state government. So that's where you are, right? And this is eight years ago? This is eight years ago, yes. And so to be honest with you, the first year is really kind of an education. Um, you know, you're, of course you have your input, but you're really kind of learning you know, the, the, the protocols and how things really, really work with the city council. Um, so the first year I really took as an education, um, I decided to give it a, a possibility of another four year term. Um, I was fortunate enough to run and win. Um, so I was elected for an additional four years. And then 
you know, I was fortunate enough again to run three years ago and, and I won again. So here I am now, an eight-year veteran of the city council and, uh, and really just enjoying, enjoying the experience. And so, of course, um, you must have learned a huge amount about how city government works and about how public policy in city government works. And uh, what, what do you learn from interacting with all those folks? Because it sounds like you're not somebody who set out to be a politician, uh, but you, here you find yourself a public servant uh, for eight years. Yeah, well, you know, the, the biggest thing that I really learned, um, to be honest with you, was you know, I, I think most people look at it, um, you know, when they look at it from a federal view, uh, where the most impactful people really to you as a citizen or as a, p a person in any community is really your town and local government. Um, so I, I just, you know, I really learned how important and how impactful, um, you know, the decisions we make and, and how they affected other people's lives. So it's it, like it's the roads, it's the schools, it's the police officers, it's the firefighters, right? I mean, that, that, that's, that's what we're talking about here. It's absolutely everything that's important to you as a citizen, to be honest with you, your taxes. Um, you know, it, it's, it's so funny how as you get older, your view for city government and what's important to you kind of changes as well. So, you know, unfortunately, as you get a little bit older and you become more on a fixed income, you know, things like schools and education and those things, you know, they, they honestly, to be honest with you, they kind of want us to pump the brakes a little bit because, you know, it all affects their taxes. Um, however, the young population is saying, okay, the better the schools, the more property, my, you know, the better my property value will be. Um, and, and they want to pump everything into education. So uh, just, just learning um, how it affects, you know, different populations, different age populations, different ethnic populations. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a wonderful experience. And, and Meriden is a city of how many roughly? Uh, roughly 60,000. 60,000. So that's a decent sized city. And, and here you are uh, having a, a big impact on, on people's lives. What do you learn from interacting with the other counselors and with the other uh, people who deliver all those services in the city of Meriden? Well, I, I think the, the one thing that you, you learn uh, the most is really patience and, and understanding and empathy, uh, learning that there's always another view, another way of looking at things. Um, because, that, you know, obviously as a parent, you know, I kind of had my own tunnel vision as, okay, this is the way it's done. When your kids ask you why, you say, okay, because this is the way, this is the way I'm telling you to do it. Um, but in politics, it's a little bit different, you know, people come at things a little bit differently. They have different viewpoints. It depends on, you know, their, their circumstances. And, and so it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful education of understanding everybody's viewpoints and then trying to make the best decision for the city. Yeah. And, and, um, and keeping in mind all those different folks. And so your point of view, you, you're a father of three, how old are your kids? Uh, my oldest is uh, she's 23. And then I have two sons. Uh, he'll be 20 soon. And then I have a 16 year old junior at Maloney high school. So you still have one in the school system in, in, in Meriden. Yes, yes, I do. But you mentioned before that you were president of Jack Barry and just uh, for the uninitiated, that's the little league, right? That is correct. That's so that's the little league on the North end of Meriden. And then the Meriden Raiders football, that's uh, that's a football team. So, so you're, you're tuned in to, and then now at, at the boys and girls club, uh, you must be very tuned in to, uh, the youngest, least experienced people in, in the community and, and their parents and, and their concerns, that's got to be a big part of 
where you're coming from. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. I, I can think back when, you know, when I moved to Connecticut when I was 10 years old and my mom signed me up um, for the boys club because back before it was the boys and girls club, it was the boys club. And I can remember uh, the director at that time and his name is Gary, but they, everyone called Gary Burton, but everyone called him Tex. And I can just remember how he made me feel, how he made me feel so important every time I came through those doors. Um, and, he, and I think he really had that impact on all the kids. And so, you know, that, that is really my goal um, is to have that impact and have that interaction and have that meaningful uh, relationship with every kid that enters our doors. Yeah. And, and, and so uh, Tex, uh, that's what they called him, Tex? Yeah. I'm not really sure where, where the name came from, but that, that's what they called him. He wasn't from Texas though, right? No. No, uh, but but what, what? So is that the sort of person who um, you? So you moved to Meriden when you were ten, right? And uh, and you you, you started uh, spending time at the boys' club. And is that the kind of person at, when you were young who made a real impact on you? You you say he made the young people uh, when they walked through your doors that he made them feel important, and that's what you want to do. Were there other things about this? fellow techs that, that made an impression on you? You know, um, and, and again, you know, I, I can only for some reason just, just kind of overall remember, you know, how he treated kids and, you know, he put his arm around you and just talked to you about your day. Uh, just made you feel really important. You know, I mean, you know, I, I, he certainly was a big guiding part as to why I wanted to work here, but he was just one of many influencers in my, in my life. Um, that really kind of developed me and made me who I am today. Yeah. So who, what's the kind of person, um, you know, people look from the outside at a person like you and say, how, you know, how does, how does somebody get to be like this guy? Um, who are the kind of people you look up to and seek to emulate? Well, I, I can tell you very, on, very early on, there were a number of adults who were really, really uh, prominent in the community, um, but really had a big impact on kids' lives. And, um, you know, to, to this day, um, you know, my coach for baseball, Ed Zajac, um, if we get together in high school, there's, there's not a day that goes by that we get together that we don't reminisce about at least one or two Mr. Zajac stories uh, that just had lasting impacts on us as, as, as you know, as kids. Um, it's had an impact on me on how I coach. It's an impact on me on how I, how I parent. Yeah, and I, you know, I tell people every day uh, when I'm when I'm teaching leadership and management that um, the best way to lead and manage is like a coach, and um, and and some people have never had a great coach, and of course, other people point out to me, well, you know, there's lots of different styles of coaching, but does that resonate with you to lead like a coach, to manage like a coach? You know, that's really my base of reference, to be honest with you. Um, you know, everything I, I, I've played so many sports growing up in my life, whether it be football, basketball or baseball, um, high school level, college level. Um, but, you know, everything to me is a coachable situation. Right. So uh, when you're looking, you know, you talk about, you know, what makes a person a great leader. Um, you know, I, I think a great leader is, is someone who allows other people to lead, allows other people to find that great, that greatness in them to bring out the leadership qualities that they possess. So, you know, when you think about interacting with others like a coach, you say um, uh, letting others lead, you say bringing out the greatness in other people. Um, 
how do you approach day to day trying to help people do that? Well, you know, to be honest with you, I, right now I'm in a situation where I'm still kind of in my one year cycle here. So I'm learning, you know, what uh, is needed for this job uh, on the calendar year. But individually, when, when situations happen, uh, rather than myself, rather than me take charge and rather than I give my opinion on how things should work. I always ask people for input. I always ask, well, what do you think? And then, you know, if, if I think that they're way off, then, then I'll give them an, you know, uh, an alternative uh, thought or an alternative solution. But I always try and let people come up with the, with the solutions by themselves rather than me, uh, you know, just imposing my, my views on them. You say that you um, ask people questions and ask them, hey, what do you think about this when you're faced with making a decision? How much of that is because of the effect it has on the individual to feel included uh, and to gain buy-in? And how much of that is that you've learned over time that, gee, more input leads to better decisions? Yeah. So, you know, I think that everything that you said is certainly valid. Um, the, the more buy-in that someone has, the more inclusive they feel uh, in making that decision, um, the, the more they support the decision. Um, but, you know, it's always been about diversity of thought uh, with me. So, um, you know, I never, my mom told me a long time ago, uh, you know, I won't say the exact words, but she always told me to, you know, that, that I don't always have the correct answers, you know? So I, I do like to get other people's buy-in. I like to get other people's perspectives. <laughs> there are other, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat basically. But, you know, look, um, that kind of um, uh, messages of humility, I think those are really important messages for, for, for people because, you know, the more, you powerful you become. I mean, here you are, you're, you make decisions about a city of 60,000 people. Um, you have an effect on the lives of young, uh, um, young people in, in the boys and girls club, um, and, and the teams you coach. Um, and, and so, you know, obviously you're, you're a person with authority and influence and yet, um, you carry that, lesson of humility from your mother uh going uh, from the beginning to now right absolutely um, a lot a lot of my decisions are guided by um either the values my parents instilled in me or or just some of the lessons that they spoke you know that they, they taught me over the years and uh you said that you see your most important role uh in life as a parent say a little bit about that because i you know i haven't had too many guests on here uh, who have been willing to opine about their role as a parent? Um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough, Bruce, to have two wonderful parents. Uh, even though they divorced early, um, you know, I, I never had to wonder or question, you know, where that parent was or when will I see that parent again? I was very, very fortunate to have uh, two very, very uh, interactive parents um, and engaging parents. You know, one of the things... As a kid, um, you know, my, my dad always said, you know what, if, if, you know, even when I went to school, he said, you know, you give it your all. And if it doesn't work out, that's okay. That's okay. We'll find something else. But give it your all knowing you gave it your all. Um, and that way you don't have any regret, you know, in, in the future. The one thing that I, you know, as I grew up and I became a young adult, 
the one thing I knew that I want that I absolutely had to succeed at was parent. Um, I, I just it was just no option for me to fail there. Um, I just think that parents play such an important part in kids' lives uh, and, and in their development and in, in their entire structure and makeup that, you know, I, I took this as the most serious job that I've ever had. How does that affect your, how you play your role as a coach? Well, I, I can tell you, I had the pleasure of coaching all of my kids and I can tell you I've been, I was a lot harder on my kids than I've been on, on any of the players that I've ever coached. Um, but you know, some of the things that are important as a parent, and that means being consistent, um, you know, having rules, all of those things have always applied to, you know, to, and my coaching endeavors as well. So, um, you know, I think that one of the things that, that if you asked any of my players and to me, the most important thing is that I'm always present. I'm always there. They know that I care about them and about what we're doing and what I'm trying to impart on them. Yeah, I mean, sometimes when I'm doing leadership and management seminars, um, you know, people will say to me on the sidelines or, um, or even sometimes in the middle of a program uh, in front of everybody uh, that uh, leading, that they've learned more from parenting about being a leader than almost any other role. Um, and so I, that's one of the reasons I'm pushing on that because I, I find that interesting. Um, and it makes sense to me because, you know, who do you care more about than your kids? Um, and of course you don't want to treat employees as if they're kids and you don't want to be too paternalistic in that sense. Uh, but I do think you learn so much from, um, from that vantage point because, you know, as a parent, you know, there's nobody you care more about and, and you learn a, a kind of service mindset. Uh, it's so um, parenting at its best, I think, is like leadership at its best in that it's, it's service oriented. Yeah, you, I mean, you hit it right. You hit the nail right on the head when you said that it's service mindset. It, you know, once I became a parent, it wasn't about LaRue anymore. It was about my kids and making sure that they had everything that they needed. Uh, not so much financially, but emotionally to me, it was the most important thing. Yeah, and when you interact with your colleagues um, uh, in city government and with your employees at the Boys and Girls Club, um, how much does that service mindset uh, come into play in how you engage with people? Well, I think that everything that we do um, is, is customer service um, from a city standpoint, whether I'm helping you out with a pothole or I'm getting your street paved, um, you know, or whether there's a, a parent here that's upset with a decision we made uh, that affected their child. Um, you know, I, I, I take all of those interactions from really kind of a customer service standpoint, um, you know, trying to, to make that parent or trying to make these people understand uh, my decision and rationale behind my decision making. And uh, how do you help them understand? Do you, uh, you, you said before that you try to um, ask people questions. How do they think about it? Um, what, what's your process for, you know, I think of understanding as communication alignment or understanding as the outcome of really good communication alignment. Um, how do you have those conversations? Uh, the, the one thing that I've learned through, uh, through sales, um, through parenting, uh, through my interactions on the city is that people want to be heard. 
you know, I, I think half of the battle, to be honest with you, is 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 listening to people's concerns, empathizing with their concerns, um, and, and then moving forward uh, with a resolution that's that's uh, agreeable by both parties. Um, you know, unfortunately, you, you don't always get a hundred percent agreeability, but y- you know, you you try and get somewhere a happy medium so that at least they're getting something from the, you know, from their out, from, from whatever uh, disservice they felt they were receiving. Yeah. So you must have to say no to people plenty. I do. Unfortunately I do. But how, how do you get to a good no? Um, You say uh, that people want to be heard. Um, You know, sometimes people will say, well, if you sugarcoat your no, you know, then, then, then people will take it well. Um, but I, I think you may be on to something with um, that it gives you more power to say no if you've really spent time trying to listen to somebody and make sure that they know you're not just jumping to no, but that you're really paying attention to their need, their request. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things I always try to do is you know, in making a decision is, is you know, I have to not only make a decision on that uh, one instance, but I also have to make it and be consistent with the greater, uh, with the greater population of, say, the Boys and Girls Club. So, you know, if, if it's a no, unfortunately, you know, I, I've listened, I understand, and I've empathized exactly with where they're coming from, but then I try and impart and make them understand exactly where I'm coming from and how it might affect the club overall or affect other kids in the club. Um, and from an equity situation, maybe it might affect, you know, kids a little bit less fortunate. So, you know, I, I haven't had a situation yet where um, I've had the opportunity to explain um, the reason why we're doing certain things and how we're, you know, why something has changed uh, that people haven't really understood. And at the end of, you know, at the end really kind of agreed and, and acquiesced. Yeah, has it been harder uh, given the constraints of the pandemic? The job, the job has certainly been harder. Absolutely, um, it, not knowing the job, being in your first year, um, and then having to deal uh, with all of the different issues that are you know surround the pandemic, and you know, so not only am I trying to change the culture around here, but I also have to make sure health wise that everybody is safe and everybody's following the rules, um, and. You know, so it's just a a different set of worries in addition to the other worries that I already had with the position. Yeah. What's the staff, the size of the staff at the Boys and Girls Club? Our staff right now is really, really lean. When I first got here, um, I believe we had uh, just 12 part-timers and three full-timers. I think right now we're at eight full-timers, excuse me, three full-timers and eight part-timers. It's not a matter of, um, you know, we, we, we certainly are going to add because we're, we're, we're adding kids on a weekly basis as people become more comfortable that we're actually doing things uh, correctly here and trying to, you know, and had a good record of keeping the kids safe. People are becoming more comfortable with the idea of sending them here for after school. Um, so our numbers are growing weekly. Um, and so, you know, we'll actually have to add staff as our numbers grow. Yeah, so you you, you uh, have made the point that um, you're you've been getting up to speed in in this new role as uh, CEO of the Boys and Girls Club of Meriden, and um, how much were you able to learn from the staff, or where did you do your primary learning for? Or how did you do that? How did you you know? I think a lot of people they move into a new role, um, they, and they want to you know. 
they don't want to learn too much in plain sight. Uh, but, but it doesn't sound like you would be afraid to learn in plain sight. How'd you go about yeah. that? Yeah, no, not, not at all. Um, you know, I'm not afraid to tell someone that I don't know. I've never done this before. Exactly. You can explain to me how this has been done in the past. Um, it doesn't mean that we're going to do it the same way in the future. Um, but I'm certainly not afraid to tell people that, Hey, you know, I've never done this before. How did you guys, how did you manage this before? You know, and, and, and solicit their feedback. Listen, we, we all have a common goal here and that is to grow the club. Um, and unless I understand exactly how they've done it in the past, I don't think we can improve on it going forward in the future. So you came in, you brought to the table, uh, of course, you, you had spent time in sales, so you know how to sell an idea, you know how to talk to people, um, you, you had a huge amount of coaching experience, so you know how to guide and direct young people and how to engage with parents, uh, but it, was, it, it must have been very club-specific um, knowledge that you, so you, so you, it was clear what you were bringing to the table and right. then very club specific, um, uh, learning that you had to do, um, and, and probably organizational, right? I mean, cause the boys and girls club, uh, I think it operates the same way that the YMCA does that each club, uh, is independent. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. We're all independent, but you're part of a, a larger movement. Correct. Yeah. We're all part of the well, Boys and Girls Club of America, uh, which is located in, you know, located in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, but we are independent and all of our budgets vary. I mean, there are some, some organizations with, you know, 30, $40 million budgets. Uh, there are organizations with $200,000 budgets. Um, you know, we're, we're right in between. Uh, we're about $800,000. So that's still a pretty substantial uh, organization and a substantial constituency. And you're in a city of, um, you know, 60,000 people. That's, that's a heck of a community to be serving. Yeah. I, I listen, I, you know, there, there's a certain, there's a need for, for what the boys and girls club offers and what we bring to the table. Um, we are not the most expensive organization in the club to be a member with, to be a member of, excuse me but we're not giving it away either. Um, so, you know, we offer uh, very uh, distinctive programs um, and enrichment programs uh, that, that really separate us from our competition. Um, and we offer it at an affordable price. Yeah. What's the, what is the, the, the values statement? Yeah. So our, our mission statement in a, in a nutshell really um, is it to really to enable all young people um, especially the ones who really need us the most to reach their full potential and be productive, caring, and uh, responsible citizens. Well, that's a heck of a mission. That's got to feel pretty good uh, to go contribute to that every day. You know, it really, really does. And when I listen to my staff and how they're teaching kids respect, uh, and I listen to the interactions and I listen to a kid, I hear kids say, you know, what? I really miss this place. That's what really warms my heart. Um, when I, when I know that what we feel, you know, what our impact is to, uh, on the community. Um, one of the things that I struggled most with is that when we closed our doors in March, uh, because of the pandemic, I knew that this place was probably the best part of some of these kids days. And so I struggled with that, to be honest with you. And I became a little depressed somewhat about it because I knew that these kids may have been struggling uh, missing the interactions that they had on a daily basis, not only with other kids, but also with our staff. So is, is it the case that a big part of the, the constituency is kids who come from less resourced backgrounds? 
Yes, that is absolutely correct. Um, you know, the average, the medium income here and for a family of four uh, in Meriden, Connecticut is about $55,000. Uh, the medium income for kids who come to our club for a family of four is about 25000 So these are absolutely kids who need us the most. And so that's, you know, when we talk about affordability, we try and make everything affordability. The city also does a wonderful job with supporting those kids who can't afford certain services as well and providing those dollars to kind of supplement, you know, their care. Gosh, uh, you're all mission. I mean, between uh, your coaching and uh, your now your uh, your role at the Boys and Girls Club and your your political leadership, um, you're you're like all service all the time. I don't really think that there's anything more important than making an impact, a positive impact on someone else's life that they can draw from that experience and grow and be productive citizens. So you know, whether it's parenting, whether it's coaching, whether it's being the executive director here, that is my mission 100% of the time. Yeah, it's it's really cool. And, you know, um, I want to come back to the politics because, you know, these days, <laughs> politics uh, is is not looking too pretty uh, in in the public eye. I think if people are paying attention, they, they might be scratching their heads or uh, mending their broken hearts or whatever it is. But, um, and, and yet, um, as you point out, what's really going on in the Meriden City Council is you're trying to help take care of the community, uh, the roads, the police, the, the firefighters, the, the schools, you know. And how many members of the city council are there? There are 12 uh, city councilors and the mayor. And you must find yourself having to persuade them, uh, your colleagues of things. And um, what do those conversations look like? Do you have, do you have any good uh, uh, local politics story? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the last thing that I really went to bat for oh, just recently was our, the ability for our kids in Meriden to play high school football. The CIAC had decided that there wouldn't be a football season. I believe it's a Connecticut Inter-Athletic Inter Conference. So they, I, I knew how impactful that would be on the kids of Meriden and how impactful and how generational changing some of that may have impacted. You know, when I say generational changing, I mean, you know, there are some kids who have an opportunity to go to school, but without that, without that football whether it be Division One, Division Two, or Division Three, without that f football financial package coming through, um, unfortunately, that may not be realized financially. So, um, you know, the, the one thing that I was fortunate enough to do was find some like-minded uh, counselors um, who, who, you know, who have the, the same affinity for kids and their opportunities as I do. And just really, I just started making phone calls and talking about it and how we were going to be safe and how we, you know, what measures we were going to take just to ensure the safety of our kids. And that, and then, you know, following that up with, with the impact that this is going to have on them, you know, um, in the long run, it really kind of was an easy sell. And, and so it was a combination of a, a lot of council support. Um, the, the mayor eventually supported it. Um, and, and the city manager and the board of ed all supported as well. So we were able to come together and, and come to an agreement uh, that allowed our kids to at least get six games of film in that now they can send to their potential 
uh, recruiters at various colleges and have an opportunity for financial assistance to, to play at those institutions. And so what does that look like when you have to go round up support among your fellow city councilors or figure out who are, as you said, the like-minded uh, uh, city councilors? Um, it, how do you go about that? I mean, what do you do? Do you just ask them, hey, where do you stand on this? Or Oh, it's a lot of Friday night phone calls, to be honest with you. Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday phone calls, um, trying to gain some support and trying to make them understand exactly you know, how impactful this is to kids and how important it is for these kids to get some type of film uh, for the fall. Um, and that, you know, and, and, I, and you have to be careful because I, I don't want to also shine a negative light on any other sport. Um, so, you know, you shut down football. Well, maybe we should shut down the other sports. I didn't want that to happen as well. Um, so you had to, to do it with some tact and, and, and just make people understand, um, come up with some safety measures that everyone kind of was on board with. Uh, and we had a very successful six season, excuse me, six game football season. Um, so it, it, is that an abbreviated season? It is. Typically the season starts and it's a 10 week season. Uh, and then you have playoffs and Meriden has been very fortunate the last two or three years, at least Maloney high school has been, that they've made it pretty deep in the playoffs, whether it be the semis and the, and then the finals two years out of the last three. And um, so it was an abbreviated season. Um, they're hoping to pick it up again in the fall if the numbers allow it. Um, but I think they also learned from this is that there really wasn't any transmission from football. The foot, all of the transmission here in the city and, and, and from the schools are really from, you know, family get togethers, uh, just people kind of being COVID fatigued and, and getting together and being a little laxed and, you know, not wearing masks um, and not, you know, social distancing as much as they should have been. Um, so I, I'm hoping that they learn, you know, that they learn the lessons uh, that we've uh, we've learned this fall and, and push for spring season. That seems like a huge contribution. And have you been worried that the kids, you know, kids might get sick? You, you always worry about kids getting sick. I mean, you know, I, I worry about kids. Listen, they're going to school five days a week and, and high school level they go every other day. You know, so you worry about kids, that, you know, going to high school. It's just as much risk honestly going to high school or me going to the grocery store, uh, you know, as, as them playing football, to be honest with you. And, and you're, uh, are they doing things to uh, protect themselves in a different way uh, as they're playing? Yeah. So some of the things that they uh, instituted were, you know, th th there were really, um, you know, at the beginning of the game, there was always a handshake. There was no handshake at the end of the game. There's always a, you know, a line of congratulations. There was no line. It's kind of lined up and just kind of waved to each other. Um, every team also uh, shut the shut uh, helmet company uh, developed a splash guard to kind of keep the transmission of saliva from person to person. Um, so that every kid on, you know, who participated in this league, this independent uh, football league, uh, they all wore splash guards on the bottom. Um, and they also were all supposed to wear mouth guards that promoted you not actually touching the part that goes into your mouth. Um, so there was no concern for, you know, hand to mouthpiece to saliva, um, you know, then to ball contact and transmission. Gotcha. So they so they really are um, doing some epidemiological best practice in terms of uh, trying to protect themselves and each other. Uh, so that's an important part of the equation. Um, yes, absolutely. But, 
And so you mentioned that, of course, if somebody doesn't get a chance to play football uh, or at whatever sport, that that might affect their ability to finance their education going forward. Uh, but it seems to me there are other things that uh, young people learn from playing sports, team sports. Um, and, and of course, you uh, said you, you yourself uh, uh, were an athlete, or maybe you still are. Uh, do you consider yourself still an athlete? <laughs> well, I, you know, it, it's funny that you say that. I, I about, I don't know, probably about six years ago, I tried to <laughs> I tried to attempt something that I saw on television, thinking that I was still the athlete that I was when I was younger. And I failed at it miserable, excuse me, miserably. And um, just to say, I, my feet almost hit the ceiling and I couldn't feel my arm for about two or three hours. Um, very fortunate that I didn't break something. Um, so while, while I always, in my mind, I feel like I'm an athlete, I know my days are beyond me of being athletic. And now I just get to enjoy uh, watching, you know, either the kids I coach, uh, them grow in their athletic uh, programs or, or, or my kids. Okay, so one thing people get from being uh, athletes is that as they get older, they, they might make the mistake of thinking they still have the physical ability that they once yeah. had, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, of course, I'm eager to hear what this uh, feat of, uh, of, of fitness you were seeking to uh, copy from television. I came home. Well, I came home. And actually, it wasn't, it wasn't eight years ago. Probably it was probably about 12 years ago. I came home one afternoon after working. And it was during the Winter Olympics. And, uh, you know, the big exercise balls that they have, the big gray or blue balls that they have, the exercise balls? Yeah. Well, one of the Olympic athletes walked up to it, jumped, and just balanced on it. And, I'm, and my ego at that time, of course, was saying, you know, my athletic ego was saying, you can still do that. You still have it, LaRue. You're still athletic. You're still playing, you know, basketball on a regular. You're still playing softball, and you're still really good playing with the younger kids. You can do it. Let's just say it was a miserable fail. My feet, <laughs> I jumped, and I, 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 my biggest problem, I think, was that my feet were too close, and it landed on top of the ball, and they went whoosh, right, right to the ceiling, almost hit the ceiling, and I landed right on my face and on my shoulder. Wow. Yeah. Well, geez, yeah. I, I mean, I think even lots of accomplished athletes who are, you know, at their peak would have a hard time doing that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but there, there's a, a psyche and there's an ego with an athlete that, that, that stays with them for most of their lives that, that they think that they still are capable of, of doing things that they see, even if they haven't trained to do it, they still think, Oh, I can do that. Okay, so that's one thing you get from being an athlete. What, what, what do you think that, like, you know, so take the young people who are getting to play football because of your advocacy. Um, what do you think people learn in terms of character, in terms of effort, in terms of, um, you know, what, what are the lessons people learn from sports? Well, the, the biggest lessons that I think sports imparts on any youngster uh, is, is the importance of, number one, hard work. If you don't practice your skill, uh, and that goes through, I mean, you know, I talk to people around here all the time about sharpening your tools, sharpening your tools. If you're not practicing and trying to get better, someone's going to pass you by uh, because the best athletes and the best uh, competitors always are practicing and sharpening their tools. Um, so, you know, it, it, it teaches you hard work. It teaches you teamwork. Um, you know, 
I, 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 you can be the best quarterback or you can be the best running back or wide receiver on a team. But if you don't have an offensive line allowing everybody to do their jobs and that quarterback the time to throw the ball, that quarterback the opportunity to hand, hand the ball off and, you know, lines not opening up big holes for you, you're not going to be very productive. So, no, it, you know, the teamwork is very important. And also, it, it kind of teaches you a little bit about hierarchy um, and, 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 and knowing – um, knowing your space and knowing what, you know, what your job is and how important your job is to the overall picture. That, I think that's so powerful. And um, uh, you're, you're so right. I mean, if you don't practice, uh, if you don't sharpen your tools, it's, a, it's obvious, right? Absolutely. And teamwork and, and, and playing your role on a team. I mean, so much of a team, you say hierarchy. Yeah. Uh, like some people are better uh, than others. And some people maybe um, uh, have more authority than others. Um, but, but playing your role on the team, you, you said you play baseball. What, 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 what uh, position? Uh, well, I started off at third base and uh, I hurt my shoulder and moved to the outfield and primarily as a DH towards the latter end of my career. And, you know, so third base is a great example. Uh, the outfield, I mean, any position is a great example. You, you know, how do you play third base by yourself? Correct. Correct. I mean, um, you know, obviously you have to have somebody over there. You have to throw the ball to, right? <laughs> you got to have a pitcher who throws the strikes, give the person the opportunity to hit the ball. So, I mean, it's a lot. I mean, everything is about teamwork. Um, the 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 value the values and, and and knowledge that you pick up playing a sport, um, you know they, they certainly extend in real life situations as well. Yeah. So when you're on the council, for example, um, that must uh, you, you know you're one of twelve counselors. Uh, right. You're in a leadership role. You're the deputy majority leader. Um, but but you know, hey, there are eleven other counselors here. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are 11 other different opinions. So, um, you know, you, you have to kind of work within the framework of everybody's opinion and try and do what's best for everyone. Yeah. Although some opinions are more equal than others. Yeah. You know, yeah. And one thing I did leave out, Bruce, <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I did leave out that sports really teaches you and probably one of the most important uh, things that it teaches you is how to deal with adversity. I, I can't tell you how, how important that is for kids to learn how to fail and how to get back up and fight again. That is probably the most important thing that they're going to learn in any sport. So, so that's true. Whether you strike out, whether you get hit by a pitch and it really hurts, whether Absolutely. you sprain your ankle or whether you lose the game or whether you lose the really big game, right? Absolutely. Well, you're fighting through some type of adversity so you can compete again. You live to learn, you live to fight again, live to fight another day. And, and so much of life is about that. And uh, I think the, the younger you are, um, you know, when, when something goes wrong, you just, some people, some young people, they, they're inconsolable and they, they, they just, they have such a hard time dealing with disappointment. I think I was a kid who had a hard time dealing with disappointment. I, I think I might be an adult who has a hard time dealing with disappointment. <laughs> Well, I mean, there, there are a number of reasons why some kids have a hard time dealing with disappointment. But, you know, the, the, I, I, from a parent, from a parental standpoint, it's, it's funny because I, I even as a parent, I never let my kids win. I just didn't. I didn't. And, and so they had to learn how to lose and how to be a good loser. 
um, you know, it, it was all sometimes, you know, you had to take away the video games for a while because they weren't really getting that, that message as clearly as you'd like them to get it. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's it, to me, you know, adversity and learning how to deal with adversity is probably one of the most important lessons you're going to learn in life. Yeah, I, I, I think that's so true. Um, so, okay, you know, you, you spend a lot of time coaching young people. Um, somebody who's uh, in an earlier part of their career is looking at a guy like you and saying, how, you know, how do I get to be uh, like you? Uh, what's, what would be your sort of golden nuggets of advice to somebody? The, the, the first thing I, I would tell them is, you, you, you know, so many people are intimidated to start and, and gain that knowledge because I feel like they have to be the subject matter expert. I, I do feel like you have to have a background, somewhat of a background, but don't be afraid to tell someone that you don't know. I don't know, but I'm going to learn. I'm going to get better. There hasn't been a year in my life of coaching that I haven't gotten better the year before because I'm always searching. I'm always looking for different things for my kids so that I am a better coach to them. So don't be afraid uh, to start and don't be afraid to uh, extend some vulnerability and don't be afraid to be clear about the fact that you're always learning and growing. Absolutely. I think that's great advice. And uh, uh, LaRue Graham, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. In our next episode, I'll talk with Joan Capua, who's the Global Learning and Organizational Development Manager at the Taylor and Francis Group, and my old partner in crime from when we worked together on programs at Wiley. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at GoTo underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.